Hi, this is Hannah Langdell, Nick Olick, and Whitney Lane, Duke Plastic Surgery residents with The Resident Review, a plastic surgery podcast. This is a platform designed for education of plastics, hand, and craniofacial surgery trainees from medical student to master surgeon. Our episodes take you through high-yield topics along with experts in their field in order to maximize your knowledge and refine your techniques. If you like what you hear today, be sure to visit our website, theresonantreview.com, for episodes, outlines, resources, and more. Stay tuned after the episode for a brief message from our sponsors. Today, we're continuing our Flapcast series, which is designed to review the basic anatomy and surgical approaches to common flaps used in plastic surgery. Additionally, each lecture will include a brief discussion with an expert plastic surgery attending, highlighting key dissection depths and technical pearls. Let's get started. Today, we are joined by Dr. John Shuck. Dr. Shuck received his medical degree at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island. He completed his residency in plastic and reconstructive surgery at Georgetown University Hospital in Washington, D.C. He then went on to complete his fellowship in reconstructive microsurgery at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center, where he is currently an assistant professor. He recently published a comprehensive review of the lateral forearm flap for use in head and neck reconstruction, and we are excited to have him with us today to discuss the lateral arm flap. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, Before we get started in our discussion, we just wanted to go over a little bit of high-yield anatomy when it comes to the lateral arm flap. Um, Overall, this is a robust and reliable fascio-cutaneous flap with consistent anatomy, uh, with multiple possible variations and minimal donor site morbidity. Also, compared to the radial forearm flap, does not sacrifice a major vessel to the hand. Nick, do you want to go over a little bit of the upper arm anatomy for us? Uh, sure. So um, thinking about the upper arm, thinking about the two major compartments of the upper arm, our anterior and posterior compartment. Our anterior is going to contain our biceps, uh, coracobrachialis, and brachialis muscles. And the posterior will have our triceps muscle with its lateral, medial, and long heads. Uh, these these two compartments importantly are separated by lateral and medial intramuscular septums, which become important in our uh, lateral arm flap. That's perfect, Nick. And do you want to review for us the blood supply for this flap? Sure. So the, uh, the pedicle is the posterior radial collateral artery and kind of tracing this back a little bit um, at the profunda brachii, this is going to divide into the middle and radial collateral arteries. And then the radial collateral artery is going to divide again into the anterior and posterior branches. And again, that posterior radial collateral artery is our pedicle. Uh, importantly, the uh, posterior radial collateral artery runs in the interlateral intramuscular septum between the lateral head of the triceps and uh, the brachialis and brachioradialis. Nick, um, what would be the venous drainage for this flap? Uh, so there's there's two venous drainage systems which I read about the. Uh, the deep drainage system, which is with the uh, vena comitans, and then a superficial system, uh, which should be through the cephalic vein. That's right. And then this flap can be innervated via the posterior cutaneous nerve of the forearm or the posterior brachiocutaneous nerve. And then last question for bonus points. If we're planning on doing a reverse lateral arm flap, uh, do you know what the blood supply would be based off of? Uh, that would be the recurrent radial artery and vein. That is right. All right. Now we'll uh, hear from Dr. Shuck. 
So can you tell us your general thoughts on the lateral arm flap, what you most commonly use it for, and then some of the advantages or disadvantages you discuss with patients? So uh, the lateral arm flap, uh, it's an awesome flap, I think. Um, But traditionally, you know, hasn't uh, been widely used outside in most cases of uh, microsurgeons, you know, upper extremity and hand microsurgeons who tend to to favor it a little bit just because they're prepping the arm using that arm. Uh, and they tend to uh, just being hand surgeons love to avoid sacrificing a radial artery for a, a radial forearm flap or the ulnar artery for uh, ulnar, ar- uh, ulnar arm flap or ulnar artery perforator flap. The um, traditional, you know, lateral arm, and I, at some point we'll, I'm sure we'll get into some of the variations of the lateral arm, but I think just to start, the lateral arm flap proper, the traditional lateral arm, is a, it's a perforator-based flap. Um, usually the skin island is designed sort of on the distal third of the lateral arm. And it's perforator-based so that the, the PRCA, the pedicle, or the posterior radial lateral artery, and its comitant veins send little perforators uh, up through the uh, lateral intermuscular septum. Uh, and that's generally what that skin island is based off. Is It's super reliable. The perforators are always there, fairly consistent. Um, there's been a number of anatomic studies looking at their sort of location. Uh, I think Ed, Ed Chang uh, from our institution has a great paper on the perforator distribution and location in the kind of mis- middle distal third. But um, generally, they're, they're always there. The skin paddle, as long as it's kind of centered over the distal third and kind of and you know distal middle third of the arm, you'll without question encounter perforators there to base it off of. Um, the downsides to the a traditional lateral arm, and I, I think are significant, and there's and there's a few other flaps that are better, um, both for pedicle length and, and thickness. So the downside to the lateral arm flap is it tends to be a little bit thicker, just in all of us that just the lateral third of the uh, of the brachium in the arm is, is a little bit thicker. And of course, you're including the septum and the, per, and the pedicle is a little bit deeper, so you tend to have a little bit more subcutaneous fat there. And so if you need a thinner flap, usually a radial forearm, ulnar uh, artery perforator flap is, is going to be better, or a skip flap or an MSAP um, are just uh, uh, you know options that are thinner, thinner flaps. And then the other side is the pedicle length, right? So when you base your skin paddle on the traditional over the perforators and the distal third of the arm, uh, the pedicle length usually, you know, you get about six, seven centimeters you know, you know, taking it all the way up as it wraps a little bit under the posterior humerus uh, and becomes profunda. So, you know, in patients where you need a longer pedicle length, usually an ALT is is, is going to be a, a better option in, in most patients. So, you know, it's a really, it's just an awesome flap and it's a beautiful uh, donor site and the anatomy is super consistent. It just tends to be a little bit thicker the skin paddle, you can't take quite as wide, uh, particularly in that proximal third, and the pedicle likes a little short. So for those reasons, um, I, you know, really it, it hasn't been, uh, as we've seen, widely used, widely reported as a perforator fasciocutaneous flap. I think that's going to change with some of the variations um, that we'll talk about 
um, for certain indications anyway. But it really is a great flap. It's just a, it's a really fun dissection because you're on tourniquet. Uh, so it's bloodless. It's really clean. The anatomy is just gorgeous. You have the, um, you know, the radial nerve, which is obviously a, a danger zone that you need to be very, very careful with, but it's just really, really cool anatomy. Um, and in my experience, the, the donor sites do incredibly well, uh, just in terms of healing, very little effect on, you know, range of motion, uh, functional issues with the elbow strength, uh, the arm, um, and they heal quite nicely and tend to actually scar, I think, pretty well. Uh, too, and patients, you know, I don't think really mind the scars uh, in that location. So for me, it's it's a it's just a it's an awesome flap, and it, for certain indications, uh, it's been a large part of my practice and others at MD Anderson. You have talked a little bit about um, some of the variations to the lateral arm flap. Um, obviously, you recently published a series on the use of the lateral forearm flap. Um, there's also uh, the extended lateral arm flap. Can you um, elucidate a little bit more about how those are different than the traditional lateral arm flap and why you might prefer to use those flaps as opposed to a traditional flap? Sure. Yeah, yeah. So... Like a lot of things, if you kind of look back at the nomenclature and the uh, uh, literature history, it's a little bit convoluted, you know, in terms of what we call what and, and you know, what what we're basing what off of. So traditional lateral arm flap, uh, as it was described, is a perforated flap. So like, like I mentioned, it's it's a relatively, you know, decent sized skin paddle uh, centered over the distal third of the arm. Uh, and it's perforator based. So the perfusion really is the, the perforators coming off the PRCA. Then uh, through number, you know, there's been numerous, numerous anatomic uh, dye studies looking at like the, you know, total perforosome or angiosome of the PRCA and its extent down on over the elbow and down to the forearm. And it's actually pretty extensive. So the PRCA uh, basically uh, courses, you know, right along the posterior border column of the humerus. Uh, and then it gives off perforators in the middle and distal third of the arm. The distal third perforators are generally the traditional lateral arm flap. Uh, and then as we know, it continues down. It gets smaller in caliber, but it, it continues and it anastomoses or, uh, uh, with the, you know, the radial recurrent vessels, um, which are not really bigger or separate. They're really just, con you know, continuations of the PRCA. Um, and as you get a little further down the humerus and approach the lateral epicondyle, um, fairly consistently that it splits into an anterior and posterior branch. And those are the, you know, radial recurrence. Those generally are, are very adherent to the periosteum. They're right on bone. Um, they're small in caliber, but they're very reliable. Um, and those, that perfusion, that perforosome or angiosome really continues over the lateral epicondyle and for about eight centimeters distal onto the lateral forearm. Uh, and so, you know, the next sort of variation is what, what is traditionally called an extended lateral arm. And that's basically a traditional lateral arm, but just continuing the skin paddle over the lateral epicondyle and then more distally onto the proximal forearm up to eight centimeters. Uh, and that's quite reliable uh, uh, in terms of uh, perfusion and viability. And then there's uh, the variant, and th there's a little bit of discordance, I think, in the literature as to what we call this. Um, uh, some refer to it as a, quote, distal lateral arm. 
uh, or uh, as we generally actually refer to it, and as we referred to it in our recent paper, uh, a lateral forearm uh, flap. I, I think the two flaps are really the same. It's just different, you know, terminology. We we chose lateral forearm just because after sort of reviewing all of, you know historical everything we could find, really the sort of first anatomic description. Uh, described it as a lateral forearm. And so that's what we adhere to. And I think it also just kind of more nicely differentiates the flap from a lateral arm flap. And it's very, very different in terms of uh, its dissection and the you know characteristics of it. So the lateral forearm flap, also sometimes referred to the distal lateral arm, is basically a much smaller uh, skin island uh, centered directly over the lateral epicondyle. Uh, and if you feel your arm, you know, you feel your lateral epicondyle, that skin there is paper thin, uh, and it's an extremely thin skin paddle. Um, we have a, a paper in, in the works um, looking at flap thickness, comparing flap thickness of upper extremity flaps, uh, the lateral arm, as well as the radial forearm, the traditional lateral arm, and then the ulnar artery perforator uh, flap. Uh, and actually, as it turns out, the lateral arm thickness there over the epicondyle is the thinnest. It's even more thin in most patients than the radial forearm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the skin paddle is designed, again, just directly you know, centered. You just draw a dot right on the lateral epicondyle and then mark your flap uh, in terms of width, which we usually just go by pinch thickness. But on average, it's about five, six centimeters in width, which is pretty much analogous to most radial forearms. Uh, and you know, your length is variable. If you need a lot of length, you can certainly include the perforators. Uh, and that's certainly a little bit safer and easier. Uh, but for a lot of, you know, small defects for which you would, you know, traditionally go with the radial forearm, this is a really nice alternative. Um, primarily for, you know, two reasons. Number one, it closes primarily. Um, so you obviate the need for a skin graft. You can avoid all of the donor site issues with radial forearm skin graft healing, which, um, which can be significant, you know, patients not uncommonly have a few weeks or even months of kind of delayed graft healing. Yes. Um, uh, We've seen some of those recently ourselves. And and even when you do everything right, you preserve the peritoneum, you can do, you know, superficial dissection up to the FCR for your radial forearm, you still, you, know, you still have some donor site issues. Um, you can overcome those by immobilizing patients, I think, for longer, but then they get a little bit more of a kind of tenodesis effect. And um, in a study that we have in the works now, been looking at um, hand strength and recovery, uh, regular post-op intervals. And, you know, patients with radial forearm flex, they definitely had much more prolonged uh, return of strength, I think, just from immobility and a little bit of tenodesis effect. So you can avoid that. And then also, obviously, the second benefit is the salvage or preservation of the radial artery. And that's, you know, we do Allen's test and everyone says, oh, it's no big deal. You can just take the radial artery, whatever. Um, but it's, I, I think it's it's really not without consequence in in some patients. And uh, there's there's definitely literature, you know, in cardiac surgery looking at long-term, you know, cold intolerance of the hand, um, you know, with the, certainly the U.S. population, you know, the incidence of uh, peripheral vascular disease in the upper extremity is increasing. Um, and, it, and I don't think it's without morbidity to sacrifice that artery. 
Um, so, and, and I think most hand surgeons would agree. Uh, and so that's also, again, why the lateral arms always been an option for, you know, first web space and certain indications. So, um, and then the other benefit is by moving your skin island very distally over the forearm with a small skin island, basically what would traditionally be your lateral arm flap skin paddle higher up in the proximal third uh, now just becomes pedicle length. And so, you know, your average pedicle length for this flap is anywhere from, you know, 12 to 15 centimeters if you take it all the way up, which is without question, you know, equivalent really to a radial forearm. Um, and so that's been a variation and I do need, you know, I, I do need to give credit to one of my, uh, partners, Renee Largo, who really sort of, in, at least in my, uh, experience and as far as I know, sort of brought this flap to the U S and, um, popularized it and B Anderson and, and made it a, a, really a workhorse, uh, for us. And, you know, you could ask our fellows, uh, uh, current fellows and they'll tell you they've, they've done far more lateral forearm flaps than radial forearm flaps, um, for head and neck. And, um, I think he, he, uh, he's coming from Switzerland and it was, it's very popular at his institution where he was at previously over there. Um, and so that, that's sort of the, been the origin of it for us. And we've presented some meetings with a lot of interest in it. Um, I don't think it's anything crazy or new. This is something that, you know, has been described previously. Um, there's been a few series that were, you know, 10, 15 years ago with it, but some had questioned the reliability uh, of the flap and had some issues with it, um, which I think, you know, the dissection is is a little technically challenging um, for sure. But, it, you know, in our experience, if you do it, you know, do it right and really appreciate the anatomy, it's, it's actually very, very reliable. Um, in terms of indications, you know, um, for us at MD Anderson, we do a lot of head and neck. And so it's become our pretty much workhorse gold standard for uh, hemiglossectomy, partial glossectomy, or smaller subtotal glossectomies uh, for intraoral buccal mucosa um, uh, and also external facial skin. Uh, it's a great option for smaller defects. Uh, the other thing I'd also point out, which um, I think is not... Um, not a, a small detail is that is the the skin match is generally much much better to the facial skin mm. than the volar forearm you know so if you you, know, you look at your thigh patients who get an alt or a radial forearm onto their face i'm sure as you, you all have seen that they have this sort of pale biscuit you know looking uh i think in in years and sun exposure and certainly sometimes with radiation that gets a little bit better in terms of color match but it, it tends to be you know strikingly obvious um in a lot of patients not all i think it's really dependent on how you know where they've lived sun exposure and if they wore a lot of short sleeves maybe got a few sunburns they tend to have a uh, a skin match on the you know the dorsal forearm and lateral elbow that's much closer to the face and so um, for facial defects, uh, it, it's quite it's quite nice. It's a great option. Um, you know, much of the lateral arm, uh, and certainly now our application, the lateral forearm has has been in hand surgery and head and neck, um, uh, particularly head and neck. Um, but I've also been using it quite a bit uh, in the lower extremity as well, um, where it's it's been a great option. I think. For smaller defects, you know, we see smaller wounds from, you know, chronic 
you know, chronic uh, lateral malleolar wounds or medial malleolar wounds, uh, dorsal foot and ankle wounds, um, you know, oftentimes, and, you know, I'm not sure quite why, but really those defects would probably be best treated with a radial forearm. But I think the tendency for some is to just avoid the radial forearm and go to something like a, you know, gracilis or muscle-based flap. Um, and I think part of that is just the donor site morbidity of the radial forearm. Um, but the, the lateral forearm has, has worked really nicely for lower extremity, for smaller defects. The contour, the color match is, is really nice. You have a really long pedicle length, so you can, you know, get higher up on the PT. You can tunnel, you know, if it's a lateral ankle defect, you can tunnel behind the uh, Achilles to get to the PT if you need to. You can uh, kind of do all things, all kinds of things with it. So um, hopefully we'll have a, you know, a series of, of lower extremity uh, experience uh, at, some t- at some point in the near future. Yeah, I think what maybe scares some people away from using the lateral arm or the lateral forearm is probably not being as familiar with the dissection. Um, do you mind going through first for the lateral arm and then the lateral forearm, um, kind of your process of marking out the flap, which I know you've spoke about a little bit already, and then uh, how you raise each of them? Sure. Yeah, yeah. So um, the sort of axis of the PRCA or the pedicle is extremely consistent. Uh, it basically runs just on the posterior border, kind of lateral column of the humerus. Um, and, and so there's a couple of ways you can mark the you know posterior border of the humerus just by palpation. Uh, sort of the traditional way to mark the axis is to mark the lateral epicondyle and then mark the uh, deltoid kind of insertion in the where it's sort of the you know, distal uh, aspect of the distal third of the arm. And you can usually, you can feel that certainly in thinner patients. It can be sometimes harder to feel in, in heavier patients. But um, if you, you know, just push deep and feel the, the humerus, you can kind of mark the posterior border of the humerus, I think, pretty reliably. And so that's kind of your axis. The PRCA runs along that. The uh, intermuscular septum just comes straight up off of that axis up to the skin, and that's where the perforators will be. Um, and so the um, uh, you know, if for a traditional lateral arm, you can mark that. Uh, you can certainly use a Doppler to try and listen for those perforators and mark them for a traditional lateral arm. Um, and then you just mark your skin paddle um, for a traditional lateral arm. Again, it's really... Uh, you know, the distal third of the arm and can extend down to the lateral epicondyle or beyond it with an extended lateral arm. And then your your width is, again, you know, like a lot of things that the literature would say has to be six centimeters or less. Um, I, I always, I think that's kind of silly because I think it's always patient dependent, right? Like, you, you know, if, um, you know, a muscular, healthy young person tends to be really challenging to close any flap you know, an ALT donor site or yeah. lateral arm, an elderly patient with you know, skin laxity, you can take more. It's really, you know, some of that is just based, I think, on pinch test. And then certainly for the lateral forearm, it's the same. You just kind of pinch that lateral elbow skin. Uh, and you can, you know, you can be pretty aggressive with that pinch test uh, because you can close the, even the lateral forearm relatively tightly and it tolerates that pretty well. Um and then the length of your flap is, is really what, what you need. Depending on the proximal you know, aspect or edge of your ellipse on your skin paddle, then you're going to want to obviously make an extension incision 
up the arm to get your pedicle length. And so that may be relatively short if you're doing a you know, traditional lateral arm flap. And if you're doing a lateral forearm flap, it's going to be fairly long. Um, you can just make a straight line incision. I, I tend to favor a little kind of curvilinear lazy S. Uh, I think that scar just kind of looks a little bit better and uh, it's not so obvious. And then in terms of harvest, so, you know, you can harvest this different ways. Some people use hand tables. Um, I, I tend to favor just a single arm board um, and basically just let the arm rest kind of at 30 degrees, uh, palm down. And that, you know, that's just a natural resting place for the arm. You can sit. Uh, you can get two, you know, surgeons in there uh, uh, on stools, and and that position with the palm down on a, you know, arm board that's almost at the side of the bed is just kind of a natural position to raise a lateral arm flap. It's kind of nice. Tourniquet is a huge. You don't have to raise it on tourniquet, but I definitely would recommend it. It's just a really nice, clean, bloodless dissection. So you generally want, you know, a, a small tourniquet as small as you can but that usually ends up being that the red you know 15 uh uh tourniquet you want to try and get it as high as you can because the higher you can get it all the way up in the axilla under the armpit then the more you can do while the tourniquet's on um generally for either a lateral arm flap or a lateral forearm you have to kind of once you do as much as you can on tourniquet you get to a point where you're actually limited by the tourniquet you have to go a little higher so you, at that point you have to take the tourniquet off and extend the incision and go off tourniquet and then you know there's you can raise the flap in different ways different approaches i think for a lateral arm flap the way that most do it the way i i, I do it just for traditional is just make your your posterior incision first and kind of confirm your anatomy. So you make your posterior incision uh, and if you've obviously designed it correctly, the center of the flap should be right over the intermuscular septum and the PRCA. So when you make your posterior incision, go straight down to the subcutaneous fat and through the fascia, you should see tricep fibers um, and you should be over the tricep. And then you just slowly come, you know, subfascial, and you'll encounter the septum. Depending on where you are on the arm, the PRCA uh, is variably adherent or slightly off of the humerus. So in the sort of middle third, the PRCA tends to be, you know, sometimes a millimeter, sometimes a whole centimeter and a half off of the humerus. Um, And so it's just kind of very easily identifiable there. As you come more distal, in the you know truly distal third, and as you get down towards the lateral epicondyle on the elbow, uh, if you're going for a lateral forearm, it, it usually in most patients is is right on bone. It's it's really just sitting on the periosteum. So, I think it's always best, safest, easiest to start posterior and kind of make your your uh, extension incision up the arm and just to find the PRCA, find your interval, make sure you're in the right place. Um, and then if you're, you know, again, for a traditional lateral arm, as you're coming posterior to anterior uh, in the subfascial plane, you want to just leave everything sort of up and preserve that whole septum. And that's when you'll, you'll encounter the, the PRCA. Uh, it's an artery. It almost always has two comatant veins on it, and there'll be a nerve uh, running with it. Um, and you'll see your perforators. And once you're, you've confirmed you're in the right place, you're happy with your skin paddle, and then you can make your your anterior incision and come anterior to posterior in similar fashion. Uh, and 
generally the perforators tend to be a little bit more anterior in, in my experience. So that um, it's the you know, starting posteriors, I think, is a little bit safe. They tend to run a little bit sort of more anteriorly. And you can often identify those posteriorly, see them kind of taken off of the, of the pedicle. And then when you come anterior, you know where they are and you can preserve them and pre- preserve the septum. The, uh, and then once you've obviously done that, you can make your distal incision for a traditional lateral arm. You, you ligate your pedicle, which for the true lateral arm is going to be pretty adherent at that point onto the bone. And then you want to, I would always then raise the pedicle distal to proximal because you want to make sure you're under it and you capture it. Um, and it can be, even with traditional lateral arm, the distal aspect can is pretty adherent on the lateral column of the humerus. Um, and so obviously posteriorly you have triceps, anteriorly you have brachialis, but actually very distally for, you know, three, four centimeters of the distal, distal humerus, that's actually going to be the brachioradialis um, origin. So um, you just, you basically, between those two, you're right on bone. And, and, and at that point, you know, I think sometimes it's helpful even using a 15 blade, uh, just kind of scraping off the periosteum, taking even a little cuff of periosteum, that's totally fine. You can, you know, transect a few little fibers as you go from the uh, brachioradialis, brachialis, and the triceps as needed. The pedicle will give off little perforators posteriorly to the triceps uh, and, and to a lesser degree anteriorly to brachialis. Um, you just got to go slow. Those are usually, you know, micro clips. If you get into bleeding on those, um, uh, it can be a little bit annoying. So I try and clip them with a little bit of length on the on the perforator off the pedicle so if any of the clips malfunction or any of any issues you're not right on the pedicle because it is a little bit small um and you just take down all those little perforators and you go distal to proximal as you get higher it gets a little easier because the prca uh isn't quite adherent to the bone and you can start to speed up but then after a few more centimeters you need to slow down because then you're getting to the radial nerve um which is you know, one of the, uh, you know, very important points of this flap. You're going to be very, very much all over the radial nerve. Um, and one point I would say is, you know, you have to be really, really careful with that because there's, you know, there's a few nerves in the body that for, you know, whatever reason that don't seem to take a joke. You know, you just look at them wrong or you pinch them, you know, it's, it's two months of, you know, neuropraxia. So, and the radial nerve is without question one of those nerves. Yeah. So, um, I generally, I try and make sure you never grasp it, you know, with a forcep or a, you know, micro to big anything. You just don't want to grab it. You barely want to look at it. You only need to do what you need to do. Um, the nerve that runs with the PRCA, uh, is generally, uh, sacrificed and that it's very adherent to the PRCA. You can salvage it if you want to be heroic, but it's a little bit risky and most don't just because it's so adherent to the pedicle. And as you come up, that basically uh, comes off of the radial radial nerve. Uh, and so you end up sort of clipping it at some point uh, as you get close to it. Um, one other point I would say uh, is that there's always an anterior branch of that nerve. Um, which with a traditional lateral arm is also usually sacrificed because it tends to be right in your septum and it's usually right around a lot of the perforators that you're basing the flap off of. Um, with the lateral forearm, you can pretty easily uh, preserve that, that nerve, uh, which I think is nice to do um, 
when you, when you can do it. And there's, I'm sure as you, you might have seen, there's the, the anatomic descriptions and nomenclature, much like the flap itself for these nerves is all over the place. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people call them posterior nerve of the arm. And then that branch is the posterior nerve of the forearm. There's the, you know, posterior, um, lateral, uh, or, or posterior cutaneous nerve of the arm, lateral cutaneous nerve of the arm. Uh, you know, I try to look at all kinds of anatomic descriptions. There's a lot of variability in what people call things. I, I have found that the anatomy tends to actually be pretty consistent. There's a nerve that's on the, on the pedicle. Um, and that's what you use to innervate the flap if you want to do it. And that's generally sacrificed. That anterior branch uh, is quite consistent, and uh, usually you need to, most would would take that or sacrifice that as well with the traditional arm. But you can save it with the lateral forearm relatively easily. What it does do is the the pedicle tends to cross underneath that little anterior branch. Um, the anterior branch kind of goes well, anterior, um, but there's a move where um, you, you need, if you're doing the lateral forearm, you need to actually flip your little skin paddle and pedicle. Once you get up to that anterior branch, take off and separate a little bit. Uh, you flip it under the anterior branch and pull it out. And that really just frees it and saves it. Um, uh, and, um, so that's kind of a nice move. And once you do that, then you can, you're kind of holding your skin paddle and your pedicle up as you come a little bit higher up to the radial nerve proper. So um, the radial nerve proper is, uh, you know, as we know, it's coming from, you know, underneath the humerus and the the spiral groove. And um, I found that, you know, that it's sometimes, particularly in a little bit heavier patients, it can be a little bit harder to identify uh, just because it's encased in this little fat wad and the nerve on your pedicle is kind of going into it. You're not really sure what's what. Um, I found the best trick to really identify the radial nerve proper is just to roll your finger over it. So if you, you know, just like if you take your finger and feel your ulnar nerve between your medial epicondyle and your electron, you you can feel your ulnar nerve. It's that little kind of, it's not rock hard, but it's hard, kind of rubbery. It's a good caliber. That's your ulnar nerve. And that's exactly what the radial nerve feels like. So if you just kind of roll your finger over that fat wide, you will feel the radial nerve proper. And that just kind of, I think, helps you be safe and know where it is uh, and then avoid it. There's sometimes there are little branches or pedicle branches going kind of in or around the radial nerve. You just need to be really careful, you know, clipping those. Um, I try to avoid cautery all around the radial nerve. If you have to use it, use bipolar. And um, and then once you're, you're past the radial nerve, uh, you just keep coming up and it. You need to make your, usually at this point, you're coming off tourniquet, you're extending your incision. Um, you need some good retractors here because it, it's a little bit um, in, a, in a hole and it starts to wrap posteriorly under the, the humerus. So I like, you know, medium sharp uh, Wheatlanders or even a Gelpie, something pretty strong that can spread the, the septum a little bit as you come around the backside. Um, and then at this point, there'll be some more branches. Um, you know, a few of these are motor nerve branches to triceps. And I you know, always do, to some degree, worry about taking those. Um, some have questioned the, uh, you know, taking those down. Does it cause weakness in the arm? I've never experienced that or had patients complain of it. I haven't really had issues with that. So you just keep coming up and then the, the pedicle kind of dives around and underneath the humerus. 
And it's only, you really need to take it all the way up if you're doing it as a free flap because the caliber really only gets, you know, of a decent size once you're all the way up. And the caliber usually is a little bit smaller. So the artery is usually about one and a half to two uh, millimeters. Veins usually a little bit bigger, usually around two and a half to three. So that's sort of the whole dissection. Um, and then I guess I, I briefly, hopefully I'm not going, no, going you're too doing long. Great. <laughs> the, uh, the, you know, the nuances of raising the distal lateral arm are a little bit different. So for that, again, you're designing your skin paddle, you know, right centered on the lateral epicondyle. In similar fashion, I, I make the, the posterior incision first, but then I also usually will usually make your extension scission, you know, which is a curvilinear line or straight line kind of all the way up the arm. So you can make that, you can really identify your pedicle and then you kind of come posterior to anterior. The key with this, uh, the, the lateral forearm, and I think why it's more challenging and why some of that issues it with it, you know, historically is you have to capture this little radial recurrent end perfusion off the PRCA. It's, it's very consistent. It's always there. It's just really small uh, and it's very adherent to the bone. So in raising the skin paddle, um, I'll usually start once you've identified the PRCA, uh, I'll you know, then start distally um, and start raising the skin paddle uh, from distal to proximal. And there it's a little weird because it's not sub-fascial. You, you have to be careful here as well. So it's almost kind of subcutaneous, uh, basically, because the, the fascia over the lateral epicondyle and distal to it is is very indistinct, and it's sort of intermixed with the uh, radiocollateral ligament. And so you definitely don't want to injure the radiocollateral ligament for the elbow or get into the joint itself. That's a that's a bad problem. So you basically raise the skin paddle. It's, it's really subcutaneous. It's a little scary because it's so thin. And then once you get right past the lateral epicondyle, you go straight down the bone because you're safe there and you're past the, the lateral collateral uh, ligament. And then basically you're just taking it off the bone, kind of piece, you know, I, you know, start a little bit distal proximal then look from the backside and identify your PRCA, like distal vessels to your anterior posterior branch and whatever you can include, you can, you include there. And sometimes you, there's a little, you know, tiny centimeter, you know, one by two centimeter area. That's a little fat wide. You take that with it. And that's where your, your end perfusion goes in. Um, and again, you're right on bone using a 15 blade or a freer. Um, I, for dissection, I, I really prefer a, a micro bipolar. And you just kind of pick it slowly on 12 or 15 as you come up and you can take it up quite, quite quickly. Um, so it's a little bit of a, a scary, scary dissection. And, you know, the first time you try this flap, you can always just extend the skin paddle a little bit more proximal. And uh, oftentimes you could capture, if the patient has a little distal perforator, you can include that. Uh, and then you can put an acclin on it later if you want to get that little thicker part out and cut it off if you don't need it. Um, but you'll see, you know, once you come off tourniquet, the flap will just, just bleeds like crazy because the, the perfusion is very, very strong uh, to it. Um, and so that's sort of my, my approach or thoughts. Dr. Shuck, that was great. Uh, that was kind of the, exactly the technical tips we were looking for. So really appreciate you going through all of that. Yeah, um, my pleasure. A question I had for you. Uh, it sounds like from reading your paper, 
for it sounds like some of the hesitancy with using the uh, lateral forearm flap in the past was because of risk or perceived risk of venous congestion. Um, mm -hmm. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about that and, and how you've been able to avoid that, or if that's something that you've seen in, uh, in your practice at all. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, you know, just, just being frank, I, I really have not seen that. I think, you know, the, the end all be all of, of raising this flap is just being really meticulous about capturing the radial recurrence and making sure, uh, you, you don't miss them, uh, or design the flap a little bit off. Um, I think if they are, you know, actually perfusing and you have them right in the center of your flap and you include that little swath of fat, um, proximal to the lateral epicondyle, um, it's, it's extremely, uh, reliable. Um, you know, the, the, the skin paddle is, is paper thin, you know, thinner than a radial forearm. It, it doesn't really need much in terms of perfusion and drainage. Um, I, I don't think, and, you know, we, you know, even, uh, you know, for intraoral or, you know, really well perfused vascular beds, um, it, it's almost like an augmented, you know, full thickness skin graft essentially. So I, I don't, I, I personally just, we, we haven't, I haven't, don't think we've really seen that in, in our experience. I think, you know, the key is just the flap design and the, and the dissection. Um, and again, my, uh, my partner and I, Dr. Rene Largo, he's got a nice video with our publication. We've got a couple other videos, but if you're ever, you know, interested or trying this flap, I, I think it's definitely worth, uh, watching that, uh, and kind of seeing, uh, how he does it, how we do it. Um, to do it safely and make sure you capture that critical area. Do you ever think it's beneficial to use spy or do you just take it off tourniquet and look and see your flaps bleeding and, and kind of move forward? Yeah. I, I've never used a spy. I, I, I don't, I think if you do it correctly, you'll see you come up here, you know, it's a little bit hairy. Uh, the dissection, the vessels are small. Um, you know, even just the pedicle dissection, which is the same for lateral arm, kind of taking it off the humerus is always a little scary. Um, but you know, once you do it correctly and you come off tourniquet, the whole thing just bleeds like crazy. I mean, it pinks up and it, it looks perfect. So I don't, I don't think, uh, spy is of any really use for this, this flap. I mean, if, if it, you come off tourniquet and it's not bleeding, uh, which I quite frankly have never experienced, but if, if you did, you know, I guess you could yeah. consider spying it. I, um, I'm not, I think spies is great in some, some regards, you know, with perforator flaps and you're pushing the limits on your, uh, you know, s you know skin paddle, uh, dimensions and you're trying to decide what, you know, a perforator is perfusing and the limits of that. I think it's useful, but this is really not a perforator flap, the lateral forearm. It's really a, um, an axial pattern sort of end perfusion flap, a la right. the radial forearm. So two degrees. So it's, um, it's, uh, I think it's pretty reliable when, when, when done correctly. It, uh, it sounds like you've used this flap kind of all over the body. I was wondering if you had a, uh, a case that kind of stands out in your mind as something memorable or, uh, you know, just, just something that, that sticks out as an interesting case that you've done specifically with the, uh, lateral forearm flap. Um, that's a great question. Yeah. Um, I guess, you know, in general, obviously the lateral forearm we're using is for much smaller defects. So the cases maybe aren't crazy, you know, wild, <laughs> uh, uh, reconstructive, you know, defects. I think, uh, you know, to name a few, I, I think 
um, the first case I did of this was as a as a as a fellow at MD Anderson, where we do some of the, some cases on our own as quote uh, clinical specialists, and um, had a, a a patient who was from out of the town. I think he's from Nashville. He was very involved in local regional politics and had a melanoma uh, on his uh, on his face, and basically had. Uh, uh, a, a full thickness defect that was kind of unanticipated down to the bone. And um, we did a lateral forearm to the superficial temporals and, you know, the color match and the thickness was just beautiful. And uh, radiation also helped a little bit and, you know, it really turned out nicely. Um, uh, in terms of, you know, the most common application we use it for is for generally for hemiglossectomy uh, defects and the, you know, reconstruction of, you know, partial or hemiglossectomy defect on the tongue is just gorgeous. You know, it really almost looks like a native tongue uh, when you finish just because the thickness and the volume is, is nice. And then I guess most recently you know, I had a case that was uh, facial kind of a full thickness defect of uh, a commissure and extra oral skin as well as intraoral buccal mucosa. Um, and for, for that case, actually uh, folded the flap and then advanced, basically folded the flap for external intraoral lining and the epithelialized like a, a strip down the middle. And then it did sort of a lip advancement to, to bring the, the lip and orbic back into continuity. Uh, I was a little worried about torturing the flap to that degree. You know, no question the radial forearm can take, take that, you know, de-epping the, the, the central strip of it and folding it in half. Um, but I was a little worried about the lateral arm being able to tolerate that just because it's obviously smaller vessels, but did, did perfectly, uh, and worked quite nicely. Um, so that's, that's probably be the, you know, the other one off the top of my head. Dr. Shuck, while we have you here, um, we have one final wrap up question. Um, for residents that are early on in training who are interested in reconstructive plastic surgery, what is one thing you really wish you'd known as a resident early on that would have helped you um, in your career, your career trajectory? So residents in plastic surgery in residency. Plastic surgery, yep. So the, like the three of us sitting here who are anywhere between an intern and PGY4 residents. Okay. And interested in reconstructive surgery. In micro or all of the above, just reconstructive or micro. Any, uh, micro. any advice you have for either what to look for in fellowship training or advice for mentorship? Really, really anything for our listeners? Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Um, well, I would first say that if you're interested in it, you're on the right track because uh, microsurgery is without question the coolest. Uh, you know, surgeries in all of the surgery kingdom. Um, and obviously I, I, I love it and that's why I do it. Um, but it, it's just an incredibly cool, you know, um, field, uh, or sub, sub, sub specialty. Um, you know, as we've discussed today, the anatomy is just incredible, you know, head to toe. I think, um, in terms of, you know, selecting a, a fellowship, um, for me, you know, I, I would say I would take a, take a, you know, an assessment of everything you have seen and will see in your residency program 
and try and find a place where you'll see something a little bit different. Because I think, you know, micro these days has become a little bit more pervasive and, and most programs get a good, you know, exposure and experience in it. Um, um, you know, you guys obviously see amazing stuff at Duke and, you know, I think you, you want to do a micro fellowship for two reasons. One, you, you know, you love it and want to get better and faster and uh, at it. But I think also uh, you want to, you know, see things that are new, you know, and learn things that are new. You know, some programs are really strong in breast and, you know, so maybe you want to find a program where you do, you know, a little bit more, you know, variability or, you know, head and neck or, you know, things like that. Um, and so, you know, you can just kind of expand your, your exposure and your experience. I would say, um, you know, there's, there are just a, a ton of really, really phenomenal uh, programs out there. And uh, so I, I would also say, check them all out. You know, you know, it's really fun, sometimes painful, but really fun to, you know, go out and meet, you know, you know, famous people and people who wrote papers you've read and uh, interview with them and, you know, might find a place that's a better fit than you, you would have thought otherwise. And just keep an open mind, I would say. You never you never know where <laughs> life will take you. That's certainly been my experience. So, but but micro and reconstructive surgery is, is just awesome. You know, it's the foundation of, of plastic surgery. Um, you know, there's a, um, I guess if I'm being candid, you know, there's certainly a lot of uh, allure and draw towards cosmetic surgery and certainly nothing against that. Uh, I, you know, personally, my own journey did a little bit of uh, private practice and cosmetic surgery for a few years, but was also doing, you know, a lot of reconstructive. And I, I really found that's what I love and, and, and what I enjoy. They're challenging cases. They're long, long cases, you know, stock up on some ibuprofen, I would say. <laughs> um, yeah, but it's, you know, you know, reconstructive microsurgery is you got to love it. And it's a labor of love. Um, it's almost to some degree, it's like a drug, you know, you do these really long cases and uh, you're you, by the end of it, you're half delirious uh, and wondering why you decided to do this. And then you finish and it's such a high. And so, you know, it's amazing and you feel so good and you just want to do it again. Um, and, and uh, I think there's a huge need for it you know, without question, particularly non-breast, you know, head and neck or extremity, you know, so I would say that would be my advice is to try and get exposure to as much as you can. And, you know, particularly non-breast, which is always the, the, the sort of the most common uh, powerhouse of microsurgery. And I, I do a lot of it too, nothing against it. I, I love it. But I think there's a lot of, you know, patients, wound care centers, lower extremity, diabetic limb salvage, there's just a ton of applications for microsurgery that, there's a big need for, you know, nationally and, and certainly internationally. So that would be sort of my two cents. I, I just want to say again, when I, um, when we were kind of bouncing ideas around about this series, uh, the Flapcast, my, my hope is that we get to have someone like take us through step-by-step, step, like the technical steps of the procedure. So that your description of uh, your dissection was awesome. Kind of like exactly what we were looking for. So I really appreciate that. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Happy, you know, happy to do any more you guys need or whatever, anytime. That's wonderful. Thanks for the advice. We can uh, certainly tell you're passionate about what you do, and we appreciate you sharing that with us today. My pleasure. As a plastic surgeon with a unique vision for each patient, the more options you have at your fingertips, the better. Natrell is one of the portfolios available to you. To learn more, visit natrellsurgeon.com. Mm-hmm.